Well, again, great to be together. Wait, wonderful to welcome you. We've been in this season of Advent, and uh, this has been our theme, Anticipate. And we've been thinking about how as Christians today, followers of Jesus, really everybody, whether or not you're a follower of Jesus, we live in the time between the times. We live in this time between when Christ first came and when he will come again. And he has set all things into motion and and salvation is possible and newness and transformation because of Christ's first coming. And yet we know and we've been reminded during this season that we live in a broken, hurting, desperate world. And we rely on the promise that one day Christ, who has initiated All of what he has brought with his birth, his death, and his resurrection will come again to bring it to its final fulfillment. And he will set all things right. And this is our hope. This is our anticipation. And so not only during the Advent season do we anticipate, you know, it's like like my daughter a couple days ago, Dad, three days till Christmas. I mean, she had it almost down to the hour, you know, when it will cross over. And, And the anticipation with cookies being baked and gifts being wrapped and all family coming to town and all these things as we anticipate the celebration of Christmas. Not only do we anticipate this and how wonderful that is, but during Advent we get to anticipate and look forward to all that we have in store for us when Christ comes again, when, when he begins his, his eternal rule and reign. And uh, so, so we've been in the spirit of anticipation. We began it uh, uh, three, four Sundays ago, beginning of, of Advent, by thinking about those old ketchup commercials. And uh, some of you are, are like, I haven't seen those, I don't know what you're talking about, but others of you remember exactly what I'm talking about. Anticipation, right? And just waiting for it to come out. And, and, and we've been waiting, and it's, you know, been loosening, and, and then today, and tomorrow, and on into Christmas, the it just pours out, and we get to celebrate and, uh, and, and be a part of, of the, the rejoicing in, in Christ's coming. The candles have been lit, except for one. The white candle will be lit tomorrow night. The Jesse tree story is nearly complete. The ornaments are hanging on this tree. The kids' choir has sung. Got to have the kids' choir at Advent at some point. And we're on the edge of our seats in anticipation of the celebration of Christ's birth. Um, We've been reminded that this season is one for celebrating. Not only this Advent season, but this season of the time between the times. This is a time for celebrating what it is that God has accomplished in Jesus. So, So let Advent be a reminder to you throughout the year to smile from time to time as you think about all that God has accomplished in your life, in your family, in his world. It's also a season during Advent where we've been challenged to examine our own lives and and let Advent be a reminder to you throughout the year to be people who consistently evaluate and examine our lives and say, search me, oh God, know my heart. Test me and see if there's any offensive way. Lead me in the way of everlasting. Uh, We need to be people who are willing to, to, to allow God to shine his searchlight of grace within us and to reveal those areas where we may need his refining work to be done 
uh, in our lives. It's a season where we've been reminded to, to trust that the one who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. That, that may be my takeaway from Advent this year. Just, just this trust, this confidence that we can have as a community of believers, really, as the people of God, that, that the one who began this work is not going to leave us hanging, people. He's not going to go off and leave us to our own. He's with us. He is bringing what he started to completion. And then last week we were reminded that this is a time, not only during Advent, but throughout the year, to live with joy and gentleness and peace. Because we know that Jesus is here. That the Lord is near to us. Mm, We celebrate that. Today we were drawn to the close of the, um, drawn closer to that celebration of Jesus' first coming, and and you know the the Christmas, uh, just the whole thing is really upon us. And it would be really easy this morning, and no doubt I've done this from year to year or from time to time, to kind of slip into some of the sentimental and kind of warm fuzzy aspects of the Christmas story. And uh, there will probably be a little bit of this going on tomorrow night uh, if you're here. The, uh, those kind of romanticized scenes from this narrative that have etched themselves into our hearts and into our minds. You know, what you think of when you think of the Christmas story. No room at the inn, the humble manger, the cattle lowing, thank you, thank you. The shepherds keeping watch, but I just like that word lowing. I, I want to know what it is to low. I, I think I probably do that some when I'm sleeping, I just kind of low. Um, the, uh, the shepherds keeping watch by night, the stars shining brightly, the, this is another one, the swaddling clothes. Swaddle. It's a fun word to say. Swaddle. Say it with me. Swaddle. Yeah. The swaddling clothes. Each of these elements touch our hearts, though, don't they? And even as I say them, they elicit some sense of emotion and some sense of, ah, sentimental warmth. Um romanticized even. And yet we know that just as it was at his death, as we looked at just a few weeks ago in the Gospel of Mark, just as it was at his death, at his birth, there were, there were at least two stories being told as Jesus came into uh, the earth. We know that there's this story that is unfolding on the surface that I've just reminded us of, giving us the details and all the vital information that was happening, Mary, Joseph, angels. But we know that there's another story being told with the birth of Christ. We know that there's a deeper, perhaps different story that's communicating the new possibilities and the eternal realities that have come into play with the birth of this baby. Things like Emmanuel, God with us. Things like incarnation, God in the flesh that are part of this other story. We could maybe compare it on some levels to the birth of a child in our day. On the one hand, there's this story of the baby's birth. And I can remember my own children and when they were born and these two stories that really were being told. Um, how long the mom was in labor, you know, just the, the details, the blow by blow. And I've told most of you that our first, our daughter, when she was born, um, according to the doctor, it was... She was almost there, and so I, I was standing by Kyla, and I leaned down, and I said, Kyla, I know you didn't play football, but 
you were a cheerleader, and it's, it's the fourth quarter, babe. We're, we're, we're almost there. And, uh, and then when Katie, our daughter, didn't come for another 20 minutes still, and the doctor was down there, and I was saying, you know, what's going on? And Kyla looked at me, and she said, what quarter is it now? <laughs> And I looked at her, Tom, and I said, it's overtime, baby. It's overtime. Come on. But I mean, there's the details, right? And how, mu how long in labor? How, how much does it weigh when it finally comes out? How, how long is it? I remember getting to go down to the nurse's station. They're measuring their, you know, the head and all this kind of stuff and the biceps on Thomas because I wanted that information. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. And all this, this information that they're gathering and... And just to, you know, what are we going to name it? And the birth certificate and this story, this one level of the story of all these things that are going on. Uh, and then um, uh, on another very significant level, another story being told. And I remember this very much. And, and any father here in the room, you remember this same story being told in your heart. The one that says this, what in the world is happening? <laughs> what am I going to do now? I'm a dad. And the gravity of that moment when suddenly you realize that there is a child in the world, at least partially responsible to you and your efforts, and, uh, and you have some responsibility for this child and, and, the, and, the, and the gravity of that moment and the thoughts of how this child will impact our family and the kind of people that they'll become. The, the effect that they'll have on the world that they're being born into. Well, the writer of the book of Hebrews, of all places, Christmas in the Christmas story from Hebrews, this guy is one who helps us throughout his little letter to consider the, the deeper side of the story of Christ's coming. This guy didn't mess around. I don't know if you've read much of the book of Hebrews, and no one really knows exactly. There's lots of ideas about who wrote the book of Hebrews, but one thing we know for sure about the author of the book of Hebrews is that he didn't mess around. He didn't have time to. He, he was writing an urgent appeal, an urgent letter to some, some Jewish people who had become Christians, but who were experiencing all sorts of uh, persecution and who were enduring suffering, both at the hands of the Jews who had not converted to Christ and the pagan government who was putting all, so they were caught in the middle. They were being squeezed. And it would have been so much easier for them to have simply thrown in the towel and said, forget this stuff. I'm going back to our Jewish faith that was kind of accepted by the, the pagan government, or I'll just bail on it all and join in with the forces of this world that are seemingly more powerful than anything around us. He didn't have time to, to mess around with the sentimental. He didn't have time to mess around with the romantic. He, he, he only had time to, to give the details and to go straight to the deeper story. And so I'm sure this, this author, he was really, I think, a pastor. I think he had nothing against the more kind of surface level details of the story, but it's clear that he wanted to give his desperate readers something solid to hold on to. It was as if, you know, this was the last branch, and it was cracking, and he wanted to give them something more solid to hold on to. It would go beyond feelings and sentimentality. So, for a different, deeper look at the Christmas story, turn with me in your Bible, grab one if you can, get your hands on one anywhere, in the seat in front of you, off your neighbor's lap, wherever you might be able to grab a Bible, get one, bring it up in your memory banks. I'm sure Hebrews chapter 10 is right there. 
uh, at the top, right? Hebrews chapter 10. Let's stand together. Let me read this for us. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I, Jesus, said, here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will, O God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am. I've come to do your will. And he sets aside the first who established the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. This passage offers us a unique glimpse of the most magnificent of miracles that we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation of of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. When you hear that big word, incarnation, it's a heavy theological word. We're not talking about reincarnation here. Uh, There was a a class at seminary that was called Incarnation and Atonement. And when Kyla saw that, she said, reincarnation as a donut. And I said, no, that is not it at all, honey. It's incarnation as a donut. And atonement. And, and, and so don't be freaked out or kind of like, you know, put off by a big word, incarnation. It just, in the flesh, incarnate, in the meat, God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. This passage, again, gives us that glimpse. Most magnificent of miracles at Christmas time, the incarnation of Jesus. And at first it may seem like a surprising Advent text. Seems like it's more perhaps about Easter than Christmas, more about Christ's death than his birth. And in fact, this passage does remind us that Jesus' first advent did have a larger purpose. It had a grander story in mind, a purpose which extended all the way from that manger in that humble cave to the cross of Good Friday and the empty tomb of Easter Sunday. In fact, the baby Jesus, we could say, was born in a manger so that the crucified and risen Christ might redeem sinful men and women. In your Bible, you see right there at the beginning of this passage, verse 5, it's, the, it's those words, therefore, when Christ came into the world, you see them there in your Bible? It's with these words that the author just leaps us into the thinking of Christ's incarnation, and it immediately gives this text its Advent and Christmas flavor today. The word that he uses for, for, uh, for, for this phrase, coming into the world, literally meant to be born into. The, the, the word actually just spoke of entrance into the sphere of human existence. And indeed, that's what was going on here. Not just a simple birth, but the entry of God himself into the sphere of humanity. The um, the author will go on in an interesting way that only he could really get away with, this author of Hebrews. He'll go on to quote in those verses 
really seven through, well, actually just all of verse uh, six and seven um, and part of five. He'll go on to quote the Old Testament, Psalm 40, which if you look back, you'll see it. It's a little bit of a different. He's translated out of the Greek version of the Old Testament, so it's a little bit different. But um, here he is quoting an Old Testament psalm written by David. But he has found these words of David to be so striking as he looks back to the Old Testament and these old words that have been spoken. He finds them to be so striking and so connecting to who Jesus is that he, li- he quite literally puts these words of David into the mouth of Jesus. And in this beautiful kind of way of interpreting and this spiritual connection of Jesus who was in the line of David, we we see Jesus speaking these words that were never recorded in the Gospels. We never have a recording of him actually speaking these words, but but, um, the writer of the Hebrews understands him to be speaking them in, in terms of the larger picture of who he was and what it was that he had come to do. This is a word, there's a word actually that I'm hearing a lot these days. And I got to tell you, I'm hearing it so often that I'm kind of getting tired of it. And uh, maybe you are as well. But there's, there's one um, podcast that I listen to, and this guy that hosts the podcast, he says it all the time. And so I'm kind of getting tired of it. But it's a, it's a good word, and I think it's so appropriate uh, because it fits so well, this passage, and it fits so well in the life of Jesus. The word is game changer. Have you been hearing that word at all in the context in which you, you, uh, you live? I looked it up, and it first appeared in the dictionary in 1993, so it's fairly a new word, but uh, game changer. And, and, and here's the definition. I think I have it written up here for you. A newly introduced element or factor that changes an existing situation or activity in a significant way. Truth is that people are using this word to describe all sorts of things. You know, somebody reads a new book, oh, it's a game changer. You know, or they have, they, they meet a, a certain person or they hear a talk. Most likely as you, you hear it as you're leaving Coast Community after a sermon, right? <laughs> oh, that was a game changer. Or, uh, or, or you, you see a movie, you know, I watched. Uh, this week with our family, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe again. And I can honestly say that was a game changer. What a great movie. Oh, drawn in. Or, or just some experience that you might have. And, and it can be any, any sort of things that we're saying that was a game changer. Whatever it is, it's clear that when you experience it or when this element or this factor comes into play, it changes everything in a significant way, those existing situations or activities in significant ways. And the author wants, us to, be, wants to be very clear to his readers and to us this morning, this, this, this solid hold that he's trying to give us this morning, that if there was ever a game change, or a game changer, if there was ever an event which signified a game-changing uh, situation, or introduced a, a, an element or a fact that changed an existing situation, it was the entrance of Jesus into the sphere of human existence. Jesus, quite appropriately, according to this author, 
and I know according to many of us here today who have met him personally, is a game changer. He begins by showing to us how the coming of Jesus has, has changed the game by becoming the solution for sin. Look at this. Jesus has become the solution for sin. Uh, verses 1 to 4, you can just look back. This is why it's fun to have your Bible, because I don't want to always put everything up on the screen. But if you look back just in, in the first few verses of that same chapter, you can begin to see how, how these first, vor- first four verses have basically been discussing the inability, the inadequacy of the old covenant system of animal sacrifice to ultimately deal with the problem of sin. And, and it was the, the practice up to the time of Jesus, really, and, and even beyond, for, for, for the sacrificing of animals to be that which would deal with the problem of sin and bring about the, the cleansing that people desired. Just Let me just read verses 3 and 4. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It's really ultimately all they came to do because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The very fact the author is suggesting that these sacrifices had to be offered again and again and again from year to year indicates that the offenses, the sins, are not finally atoned for or set right by the sacrifices. The best they can do, he said, is to just remind us of how bad we are, how sinful we are. That's the best they could ever hope to do for us. Uh, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. You see down there in verse 5 as he begins to quote Psalm 40 for Jesus. The writer has Jesus say this, but, but then this phrase, but a body you prepared for me. The simple and beautiful point of this passage in this early place here is that Christ came into the world in a physical body. The sheer physicality of it was so accurate and so important so that he could ultimately become the final and ultimate sacrifice for sin. What couldn't be accomplished by the year after year sacrifice of animals would now be accomplished by Jesus, by the willing sacrifice of his own body. The solution to sin. One author said it like this. It's the atonement, that's the work of Christ on the cross, it's the atonement that explains the incarnation. That incarnation takes place in order that the sin of the world may be put away by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. He's the solution for our sin. This, this, uh, this week, some of you may have seen some posts on Facebook coming from our family, but Tyler had a little car trouble. and uh, it, Oh, you didn't? Okay, well, I'm just telling you then. Um, she had some car trouble, and it was such that, that we didn't have a clue what was going on with it. It was, just, it was just dying. And it would be after she got out of the car and start to walk away, and then she'd go to lock it, and the battery would be just completely not functioning. And it, she'd be able to come back in maybe a half an hour, 45 minutes, and then it would 
work and it would be okay. And this had happened to her about five times or so uh, over the last five weeks. Not regular enough to you have a, feel like you really have a problem with it, but regular enough to be concerned that you might get stranded somewhere. In fact, um, she got locked into her car this week. We'll let her explain the details of that to you later. But, but it, it, that can be really concerning. Um, and, and my concern was, I've had some cars before in the past that you just have this little nagging kind of thing, and you can't ever really put your finger on it, and, and you just kind of, you know, you fix, try one thing, and I know Jeff, our mechanic, he's done this a thousand times. You fix one thing, and maybe that doesn't quite get to it, so you're going to go over here, and you try to fix it over here, and that doesn't quite get it, and so this can go on forever and ever. Ryan, you're not at me. You know, this, I think the phrase is troubleshooting, right? I mean, it's like troubleshooting problems. And uh, we have troubleshot the problem now just by tightening the connections to the battery. What do you think? Probably a good place to start, yeah. And uh, we're hoping that this may be the solution for the car troubles. The reality is, is that the animal sacrifices for the Hebrew people to this point were just troubleshooting their sin. Just trying to get at it from this. And today we have expanded this to, to try to get at it from other ways. Trying to be a good person. Trying to give a little extra in the offering plate. Trying to do this compassionate deed. We've been maybe trying to just troubleshoot our sin by overcoming it with these other things. But the reality that this passage points us to here at this Christmas season is, again, that the incarnation is explained by the atonement. That Jesus, that, that the reason for this season is, is the, the sacrificial death of Jesus that makes possible the forgiveness of sin. The true solution. We don't have to troubleshoot this issue anymore. We know the problem, and we know the solution. The, the author goes on. Let me, let me highlight another idea. He goes on to continue this theme by showing that Jesus is a game changer, by, by showing how Jesus is this model of obedience. The writer makes it clear that it was, again, not sacrifices and offerings that God desired, but a willingness to obey no matter what the cost. No matter what the sacrifice, even unto death. It, re, it reminds me of the, uh, the Old Testament phrase that it came into play a few times. To obey is better than sacrifice. And here's Jesus saying the same thing. You didn't want sacrifices. What you wanted was obedience. A willingness, again, to obey no matter what the cost. And I love the words that are spoken by Jesus in verse 7 and then again quoted in verse 9, where he simply says this, here I am, I have come to do your will. Repeat after me, would you? Here I am, I have come to do your will. Here I am, I have come to do your will. Jesus' entire life and ministry was stamped by this desire to do the will of the Father. We see it clearly expressed in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Not my will, but your will be done as he approached the cross. But throughout his life, throughout his ministry, we see Jesus pulling away into private moments of prayer, undoubtedly where he prayed these same prayers. Here I am, Father. I've come to do 
your will. And it's in the doing of this will that Jesus would make our forgiveness, our life, both now and forever possible. You see, he, he, it's the great reversal. It was, it was, it was sin and, and disobedience that had brought about the whole tragedy of man's separation from God. It was our choice against what God wanted for us and against who God was that had pushed us away from him to begin with. Man had sinned, humanity had sinned by turning from God's will to do his own. But now Christ was reversing this pattern. Christ was demonstrating for all who would observe and follow him the level of obedience that he was willing to give and in so doing redeeming all of humanity, turning his own will to God's. It's as if this passage, and it may be a little hard for you to, to kind of fathom it. The Hebrew writer is a little bit tricky. He's kind of all over the place. But really, it's, you might picture this passage as offering us a window into heaven. In, in the days before the incarnation, and a window into a conversation in heaven, actually, between God the Father and the Son, the eternal Word of God, who has been with God from the very beginning. And this conversation between the Father and Son and the Son simply looking to the Father and saying in this triune way that we can't completely explain and saying, whatever you need me to do, wherever you need to send me, in whatever shape or form you want to send me, to do ultimately and pay whatever cost you ask me to pay, I'll do it. It's this this window into this conversation, and we can, we can stand back, in a sense, and observe this. And we can do so with grateful hearts. That, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit would enter into this agreement, this triune agreement, for the salvation of all humanity, and for new life, and for transformation we can be so grateful. The Son voluntarily and willingly carrying out perfectly the will of the Father, His desire, His delight to obey the Father. Uh, one said it like this, I've come to do your will is written over the whole record of our Lord's life. This was His attitude from first to last. I've come to do your will. Oh God. Again, it was through his obedience, we're told, that God set aside the old system of dealing with sin uh, that never really did deal with sin and established a better way. The Hebrew writer will go on to say a living way in which we can experience the fullness of forgiveness and life. But not only can we be thankful this Christmas for the conversation and the willing uh, obedience of Jesus and what that makes possible for us. But I think maybe in a, in a unique way uh, this season and maybe even this day, we can also look on the model of Christ's obedience as one for our own lives. And what it might look like, you can leave that up there, that's fine, what it might look like for us to begin to follow Jesus in this same sort of statement. The same 
words. Again, here I am. I've come to do your will. If Jesus and his obedience brought about the forgiveness of our sin, then what is it that God might want to bring about through our own levels of obedience? I I don't know. Have any of you ever kind of looked back at a certain situation in life? And if you haven't, then you're not human, but you look back at a certain situation in life and you remember kind of, you know, two roads that you could have gone down. And, and, and one way or the other, you, you, you chose the, the, the road less traveled, perhaps, and as it's been spoken of. And, and, and you began to see and experience blessing in your life and God's direction and God's leadership like you had never sensed before. And I was talking to some people just this week that, that as they've made some of those choices, they begin to see the impact and the imprint of their lives being, being, in, you know, being extended into, into ways that they could have never imagined or never dreamed of. Or we might look back and say that we took the road that was crowded with people because it was the, the easy way to go. Or it was the way that everyone was going. It seemed right to us. And we could, we could point back to that choice, that time where we would even have to say that we disobeyed God. And we can point to the, the things that have come about as a result of that, things that we're probably not too proud of, things that have been difficult for us now throughout life. Well, I, I just was thinking about that even, um, again, this week. What are some ways... Today, I mean, what's done is done, and we had a speaker here a number of years ago that was just wonderful. He said, your, your uh, windshield is bigger than your rearview mirror, right? So, so we're not going to spend our life looking into our rearview mirror at the past, at the decisions that we made, whether they be good ones or bad ones. I mean, if we're the kind of people that are just always living on the laurels of our past good decisions, we're not going to get very far. And if we're the kind of people that are stuck in the mire of our past bad decisions, disobedient decisions, we're not going to get very far either. So as we look into the windshield of our lives, as we move ahead, what are the, what are the commitments of obedience? What would it look like for you and for me to say, here I am. I just want to do your will. Here I am, God. Jesus is my model. He's the perfect model of obedience. I'll, I'll never quite get to that level. But he's my pattern, oh, Father. And I'm going to give my life to following him with everything that I have. And so I simply say to you, here I am. I have come to do your will. Say it with me one more time. Here I am. I've come to do your will. Last point here, the writer makes it clear Jesus is a game changer in the sense that because of his obedience, he gives us a true hope for holiness. He gives us a true hope for holiness. Uh, I I don't know if you noticed it, but I mean, again, this writer, he doesn't have time for the small talk. He doesn't have, he's not into chit-chat, all right? He's not into just kind of flowery, fluffy language, and you saw it there in verse 10, and by that will, 
we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Because of Christ's willingness to assume a body and to allow that body to be broken and crucified, Jesus has made it possible that we might know the reality of transformation and new life. Uh, again, the, the Hebrews, they would have been so tempted just to, in this, in this being squeezed in the middle, right between the, the, the pagan government and the, and, the, and the Hebrew traditions, so tempting for them to have just kind of, again, bagged it all and just, just go back to doing how we did it for all those years. It worked, you know, it worked okay for our fathers and our grandparents and those before them. It, it may not have been perfect, but I can just imagine them almost, you know, thinking, because I know I felt or thought the same kinds of thing. It was something that they could literally touch and feel, and see. It was something they could do to, uh, to grow their own level of holiness, in a sense. And again, we, we might not uh, do animal sacrifices, praise God, but we do, how many of us, kind of spin around in religious behavior, if I might say, even during this season that I'm pointing, you know, one finger at you and three fingers back at me. Um, frantic religious behavior. And sometimes that's just because we get caught up in the spinner thing. Sometimes that's because it's something that we know we can see and touch and do. And somehow we kind of begin to think that in seeing and touching and doing, we are kind of evening the scales a little bit. I do this, you make me holy. I do this, I grow as a holy person. I do these things, I'm becoming more holy. And the Hebrew writer reminds us, this, reminds us that this simply is not true. There is nothing he would say to us that we can do to effect holiness in our lives. It has already been done. Once and for all, Jesus has accomplished it. What is left to us is to simply allow the work of Christ to be applied to our lives. It cannot be improved upon. This is not something where there is room for improvement. The... Uh, the reality is, I think as well, that this once and for all offering of Jesus deserves a response on our part. Again, maybe some of us just need to decide today that by God's grace, and from this day forward, we're going to allow everything that he's done change and work on every part of who we are. And if, if the Bible says to you and to me, that through the sacrifice of his body, we have been made holy, then, uh, then I think none of us would want to say that, uh, that that's not our call, that that's not our quest, that that's not the goal to which God is leading us as we allow the person and the presence of Jesus to do his work in us, making us new, making us holy. 
Well, that song that we sang this morning, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's, it's a great song, isn't it? I mean, that's one. I don't know why we don't sing that in, you know, like July. I mean, it's, it's, it's got great Advent and Christmas themes, but it is just filled with uh, theology and just doctrine and, and beauty. I, I wanted to remind you of a couple of the phrases that you maybe sang this morning absentmindedly because you were caught up in the, you know, that's joy to the world, huh, 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 sorry. <laughs> you were caught up in it maybe and maybe missed the, the, the phrase. Did you hear it? Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his name. What might it look like for Jesus to bring light and life to you? This Christmas season. He's a game changer. He wants to change the game in your life. What about this one? Born to raise the sons and daughters of earth. Born to give them a second birth. That's why he came. That's why he's here. With the herald angel, we sing, glory, glory, glory to the newborn king. Thank you, Jesus, that you come into this space that you've invaded our world. Thank you, Father, that you've sent your very son, you've sent of your very self. Thank you, Lord, that You've come in a beautiful and a powerful way. Thank you that there's a, a, a couple of different stories that we can attend to at this Christmas season. Thank you for the, the, the surface level story that, that we see that is so impactful and so many details there that teach us so many lessons and remind us of so many truths. And thank you for this story within the story, this deeper narrative that reminds us of the truths of, Eva of Emmanuel incarnation, ultimately of atonement. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to that, that manger, that, that wooden cradle, that roughly constructed feeding trough, and that what began there would end on a cross, a roughly built cross on which you hung and died for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you willingly and voluntarily, it was your desire and your delight to obey the will of the Father. And thank you that in so doing, you've, you've granted us the possibility and the hope for life, the solution for our sin, the hope of our holiness. And so now, Lord Jesus, we give ourselves to you in a new way. Just as this word from the, uh, the writer of the Hebrews was one of urgency with no room for small talk. So was the response of those first readers and the response of everyone who would hear it today. Does it demand an urgent response as well? This really is not one, God, that we, that we, uh, we need just to, to ponder and to reflect upon. 
this is a, a, a message, uh, an invitation from your word today that, that calls for response, even now. And so this Christmas season, as we're enmeshed in a lot of activities and a lot of issues and family and responsibility and, and presents and lights and gatherings and food and everything else, may we, may we take even the moments, even now, to, to make that determination that just as you follow Jesus obediently, we will follow. That just as you gave of yourself to make us holy, that we will give of ourselves to receive your holiness even today. We love you, and we want to respond to you even now.